welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, this is half an hour where we talk about science. I'm Stu, and on today's show, I'm going to bring an end to the tyranny of spiders being the coolest arachnid things around. Spiders get a good rap. There's a superhero named after spiders. It's time for that to end, and I'll explain why. A little bit later on, Chris. You found a cooler creature. I found a cooler creature. Crickets. Well, Speaking of, you know, important research topics, I'm, I'm looking at a, a new study that has found that, that fans actually cool you down. That's, um, they've done some research, they finally determined this. It, it was a kind of a long-standing question. But yeah, having the fan on is, is a good thing to cool you down. It's a bit more than that. Basically, the question is whether, you know, when it's really hot, whether a fan will actually cool you down or just blow hot air on you. And the answer is that it, it probably will still cool you down. So I thought I'd look at that. And maybe if you have time, talk a little bit about, about fan death as well another kind of oh that's the korean thing the strange korean thing of yes. fans will kill you beth what have you got for us okay so what you guys talk about the the more profound um things in life and the more profound science i catch up with a researcher um who from the university of melbourne who is looking um or investigating how mental imagery or hallucinations people have found pretty much equivalent neurological activity through neural imaging how these two types of brain activity kind of have conflicting findings so how so how they're interpreted is it exactly we'll talk to researcher eden smith uh, about that and she will shed a light on it Everybody has probably heard at some stage how spider silk is the strongest natural substance known to science. You probably all heard this, right? So, you know, people say that its tensile strength is greater than steel of an equivalent size and all this sort of stuff. It probably is. Well, I, I it think, definitely I think is. It, it definitely up. is. Yeah. And they're not making that up. They have no. tested it. Okay, um, good. And, in fact, they've not only tested it, but for years they've been trying to figure out a way to use this knowledge to make materials out of spider silk because it's so strong and so light and Mm -hmm. they've tried to make you know synthetic spider silk not with a great deal of success because um basically what they're trying to do is make spider silk bigger Mm. um and it doesn't really work because that's not how spiders work and spiders are limited in size too so you can't even really collect it all that easily i think beth was talking recently about putting it making goats make Spider. Oh, that's right. Yeah. The, um, it was a Halloween special. Yeah, just some research. It definitely didn't yeah, spider work. Goats, yeah. okay. Spider goats, yeah. Spider goats. Spider goats. We yeah. don't have to go there now. Well, they can maybe give up the search because it turns out that another creature has been producing something even stronger and possibly been doing it for longer than spiders have been around. Okay. So the substance itself is actually part of the animal's body, unlike the spider silk. So... You're not even really going to be able to harvest it because it's sort of stuck to these animals. Can you guess what kind of animal it is? It's going to be some sort of so something that, armadillo kind of does thing. It ooze or... something like? No, is it, can you think of an oozy no, creature? No, it's actually part of its body and an imperative, important part of its body that it needs every day. It's so something uh, sticky, something very sticky. No, is it something teeth? Something maybe the no. strongest substance produced yeah. in nature so far discovered turns out to be snail teeth. 
Like it just uh, grits onto things. Well, how does this work? You might think snails don't actually have teeth, no. and they kind of don't. Well, not the same way we have teeth. But if they did, they'd be very strong. They do have very strong appendages. Um, so the teeth of snails are arranged along their tongue. Well, it's a tongue-like appendage that they have, which they, you know, scrape along things to get food. So the garden like snails... Like a chisel kind of thing. Well, sort of more like a rasp, like okay. a, you know, like a wood rasp or a mm. file or something okay. like that. Um, That's what I was looking for. The, so the snails we find in our gardens use that rasping tongue to eat plants, but the snails with the hardest teeth are, kind, are a kind of limpet, which is found in the ocean, called Patella vulgata, these limpets. Um, so in a report published in the journal Interface, uh, which is a Royal Society journal, the snail teeth have shown to be up to 10% stronger than the strongest known spider silk. And, this is quite surprising, they're partially made of iron. Wow. S snails have iron teeth. That's, that's good on them. So when you say they're stronger than spider silk, I mean, is this like in tensile strength? Is this in like hardness? What kind of... Because you're kind, kind of, of contrasting a thing with an appendage. Well, what they've done... Well, the, the tooth itself is made of this particular substance. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and it's actually, um, just like our, you know, the toughest manufactured materials we have are generally composites... Mm -hmm. which are made of more than one component. So the limpet's teeth are also composites. So they're partly made of a mineral called goethite, mm -hmm. which is high in iron. It's got a high iron content, mm -hmm. and partly made of chitin. Now, uh, goethite is really strong, but it's very brittle. So it has you know great compressive strength, but it breaks very easily if it's okay. dragged along something or, you know... Um, and it's very hard. Um, but the chitin, uh, which is kind of like an animal version of cellulose. So insects, exoskeletons are made out of chitin, and there's a whole bunch of different things that are made out right. of chitin. Um, snail shells are made out of chitin mixed with calcium carbonate, and that makes snail shells okay. and, and other mollusk shells. And it's a protein, is it's it? It's not a protein. No? It's, a, uh, it's a polymer made based on a glucose um, monomer. So, yeah, so it's it's like a really complex sugar. Okay. Um, which is, you know, it kind of, it, the way they use it is it's kind of like a glue. It kind of sticks things together. So that kind of makes sense. But it's like, yeah, it's like the animal equivalent of cellulose because animals don't make cellulose, only plants do. Um, but it's a very similar chemical structure to cellulose as well similar components in it as well. The goethite, which has got the iron in it, is sort of glued together by this chitin, which they produce. Um, and according to the report, the chitin is arranged in fibrous strands that are very strong but flexible. And when they're combined with the goethite, so when they measured the strength of a snail's tooth, of a limpet tooth, mm -hmm. They found that it has a resistance equivalent to imagine if you had a piece of string, so say a piece of string only a millimetre in diameter, a piece of string could hold a small car, 1,500 kilos suspended from a piece of string. That's how strong the snail's tooth is. Obviously, they're not that big. They're quite a lot smaller than that. Mm -hmm. um, Why aren't they? But the equivalent size is... is um, the equivalent strength if they were blown up to 
bigger sizes. Why have they got teeth that strong if they are vegetarian? Like, why wouldn't you have that? Like, well, could they eat? Well, they're scraping rocks all day. That's right. They scrape algae from rocks with their tongue. Mm. So you imagine you don't, you wouldn't want to lick too many rocks in a day with our tongues. They would wear out very quickly. Mm. And if that's all you eat, if you're a limpet, then if you didn't have anything to scrape the the algae off with, you would starve pretty quickly. So they've ended up with these really, really, really tough, toothy um, appendages on their tongue, which help them scrape algae off rocks all day, every day. Um, So, yeah, they need to be resilient enough to withstand the daily grind (laughs) uh, without wearing away. The... um, so they you actually find these all over the world as well. Limp the, these particular limpets here in Australia. All the they're all over the world. Right. So it, and at all depths of the ocean too. So they're from quite deep in the ocean, um, all the way up to you know. I imagine they're mostly on the the rocks though in the ocean. They're not they like are floating they are around, swimming around. Yeah. Well, they can swim around at hmm. some stage of their okay. life cycle, hmm. but obviously they can't be any deeper than light can penetrate the ocean because there's going to be no algae True. where there's no light. So that's a limit to their range. Um, the limpet limit. The limpet limit, that's right. Um, now, the lead author of the report is not actually a biologist. He's a mechanical engineering professor from oh. the University of Portsmouth who thinks that this will be easier to replicate than trying to get spider silk. He actually thinks that there's potential for being able to generate materials based on the limpet tooth, using the same materials, Mm -hmm. using 3D printing technology, which, you know, seems to be a bit of a buzz at the moment. Everything can be... Everything in the future is going to be 3D printed um, from the sound of things. But, you know, that's just an interesting way to do it because I guess the the spider silk is is a... a, What do you call it? Fibre. Spider silk is a fibre. This could potentially be, you know combined in a number of different ways that's not just a fibre. Mm-hmm. So you won't have to get a fibre and then weave it into something. Okay, be fair enough. To... Yeah. This is a classic case of biomimicry. Absolutely, so... yeah. Um, so, as I was saying, I think that, you know, now that now that spider silk's not the strongest stuff around anymore, I think there's room for a new superhero, move over Spider-Man. I think the, the limpet. Person. The limpet. Just the limpet. Just the I limpet. Think that's, yeah. Okay. Just the limpet. Fighting crime in the intertidal zone. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure how the limpet would fight crime. Maybe yeah, slowly. Very slowly. <laughs> Maybe just like rasping them with their tongue until they, until they gave Desist. in. Oh, no, Captain. <laughs> there is algae all over our rocks. Call in the limpet.
Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and here I am to settle the question of, is it worth putting the fan on when it's hot? Uh, let's cut to the chase. It is worth putting the fan on when it's hot. I guess this is this is the, the research, the results from research. Um, Dr. Ollie Jay from the University of Sydney has, has done a study, which Things has been published recently. Things you learn on Lost in Science. Yeah, when it's hot, put on the fan. Yeah, the fan. okay, okay, so there's, there's a bit more than that. Okay, so that basically the controversy is about when it's really hot, do you put the fan on? Is, will it cool you down or will it just blow hot air over you? I mean, you think about it that, you know, say when you open the oven and the hot air comes out, that's a bit unpleasant. That doesn't mm. cool you down, mm. no. you know. And when you have like a fan-forced oven that's like circulating the hot air around to make things cook quicker, it's clearly not a good thing. No, right? so it's used, it's specifically used to heat things up faster. It is used to heat and, but up. we're talking quite hot there. That's 180 well, we are talking quite degrees, hot, yeah. which... Is not the case. But I guess the point is that one of the ways that heat is transferred from one place to another is by convection, which is the movement of, of fluid like air. Okay, so, and the, the World Health Organization has a recommendation that you shouldn't use a fan to cool you down if it's more than about 36 degrees, which is, you know, they're looking at around skin temperature. So essentially the idea is that if the air is going to be hotter than your skin temperature, there's no point having the fan on because it's going to heat you up, not cool you down. That's their logic. However, turns out that no one actually tested this properly. So this is what uh, Dr. Ollie Jay from the University of Sydney has done um, with the University of Ottawa in Canada and Loughborough University in the UK. They did some experiments where they tested people at uh, 42 degrees. And what they found, they varied the humidity as well. And what they found is that people were more comfortable, up to about 50% humidity, people were more comfortable with the fan than without. And this is like, you know, asking people, how do you feel? Just volunteers subjected in a room with the fan. So so is that suggesting that over a certain level of humidity it's not making fe- making people feel better? Yeah, because the, the reason the fan actually does cool you down is because it is circulating air above you which increases the evaporation from mm. your skin, so from your sweat, particularly when it's hot. Um, so if it's too humid then you can't evaporate your skin um, you know, you not the heat is not, the moisture is not going to leave your skin and go into the air and, and take heat away from you. So yeah, above a certain humidity, it doesn't help to cool you down. Uh, and also, so they this is they this is a big finding. I guess this basically gives us more options as the world heats up and we get more and more frequent heat waves. We have some options there. Um, this it's not totally settled. Let's let's be honest here because they've said that it's and they pointed out that different people sweat different amounts. So it will not be the same results for everybody. So what are our options um, to put on a fan or not to put on a fan? Not to put on a fan, yeah, pretty much. Um, they did also suggest that you can um, you can wet yourself down. Like you could use a damp sponge or something to, to wet yourself down, have That's artificial, a good, artificial a good sweat. That's third option. So, yeah. so, so if, you're yeah. not, if you're not a sweaty person? If you're not a sweaty person, yeah, you can, you can artificially wet yourself down and, and blow the fan over you, and that will help. Um, cool you down. And like I said, this is important because um, previous, I looked at some previous studies and uh, the best, you know, medical evidence from the, the Cochrane Library, which, you know, collates proper research, basically said that they had no advice on whether to use fans or not. It's it's something that's been a puzzle for the medical community for quite a while. So I think you'll be all glad to know that you can use a fan to cool yourself down. Um, so what if it's over 50% um, percent humidity, over 42 degrees, would you go for the sarong over the head that's wet or the sponging and the fan or would you go go for nothing no fan no sponge no sor- wet sarong uh, they, they, I, they I personally would go for a swim they they well i think Stu might have a good point there um <laughs> i i don't really know what to do over 42 degrees i mean they, they don't give me a lot of information on that um look i think the the answer basically is uh probably 
try it and see if it makes you feel better, then it's probably actually making you feel better. Um, yeah, so try it and yeah. see, I yeah. suppose, is a, is a thing. And look, and they're, they're, but they're looking at this as a public health thing, should they recommend people put fans on if it's going to be hot? And it's good to know that the fan will work. Um, I think one of the one of the things that I've, you know, that people have said is that unlike an air conditioner, which will actually cool down the temperature of yep. the air in the room, yep. if you're not in the room, the fan's not doing anything, so you might as well turn it off. That's true. When you're not in the room, the fan won't keep the, the room cooler, and it's only no. when it's moving the air over your skin that yep. it's actually going to do any good. So, yeah, if you leave the room, turn the fan off, be good, save electricity, because that electricity you're burning is actually heating up the world. Um, so, you good know, point. You, good Although point. fans use a lot less electricity than an air conditioner. That's true. That, that's time. true. That's true as well. That's true as well. We need motion-activated fans that only come on when you walk in front of them. Yep. But because we're looking at the um, the safety or the f efficacy of fans, I thought I would briefly give a bit of shout out to to fan death. Uh, this is a condition that is only known in in South Korea, uh, and it's a fear that a fan left on overnight will cause you to die in some way, whether it's through hypothermia or asphyxiation is a common belief that I think the actual the Korean government um, put out some warnings back in two thousand and six. Uh, this, of course, what was the basis of their of their um, of their worries? No one seems to know. Apparently, there are stories going back to like the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties, which is um, when electric fans would have possibly possibly, possibly. First appeared. And maybe one of those things that people had been found sort of dead in their room, and, and they may have you know died from like a heart attack or something like that. And someone said, and there was a fan on. Someone said, well, maybe it was a fan did it, and this kind of. Um, so there might have been some sort of word of mouth correlation at some point, but yeah, possibly no causal relation, uh, possibly. Uh, and it's you know it comes into the category of of what they call culture bound syndromes, and these are, I guess, conditions that are affected in, within a particular cultural group or a particular country that you don't tend to find in other places. And so this this one kind of falls into that category. Um, obviously, it's more likely this one is not a real thing. Um, there are some other conditions that are more sort of psychological and sort of certain conditions will be interpreted or you know your cultural and your expectations will affect the way that you experience some um, some psychological dis disorders uh, but yeah certainly it's it's a, it's quite interesting that there are some health worries in some countries that aren't worries in other countries like that so in in general we're saying that uh, if if it's hot, put on a fan, it won't kill you. That's right. That's right. Yeah. The um the belief in fan death is declining, um, perhaps, perhaps due to the internet, as as young Koreans discover that the rest of the world doesn't believe in it. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, it will eventually blow over. I imagine. <laughs>
I'm sitting in the Library of Melbourne University and I'm with Eden Smith, who is a PhD candidate in the History and Philosophy of Science. Eden, thank you for taking time um, and talking to us on Lost in Science. Thank you for having me. So your study looks at the knowledge that neuroimaging generates about the mental phenomena. So we use mental imagery to watch or indirectly measure brain activity. Can you tell me a little bit about neuroimaging and how it relates to your research? Neuroimaging is uh, used to indirectly measure um, the changes in neurological activity during mental phenomena often. What I want to look at is the way that the our understanding of neurological activity is generated and how investigating phenomena such as hallucinations and mental imagery contribute to this knowledge. The way that uh, mental imagery is understood is as a uh, sensory experience that occurs in the absence of relevant stimuli. Um, hallucinations are very um, much the same in that they're sensations that occur in the absence of relevant stimuli. However, a number of characteristics of the experience are typically used to differentiate the two. The difficulty is with the difficulty with this is that these characteristics aren't particularly consistent, <laughs> um, and there isn't a consensus as to what that difference is. Um, so even though we use these two concepts as separate phenomena and we use one to look at um, dysfunction and one to look at function, the difference between the concepts we use in that research isn't clear. Uh, some really classic examples of mental imagery is uh, one of which is um, Nikola Tesla describes um, constructing and operating me mechanical apparatuses in his mind and reconstructing a sensory image of a book in order to recite the entire book with every word between the covers from first to last. And that sounds pretty extraordinary. Um, more everyday examples. <laughs> if you imagine seeing the face of your friend or you imagine your uh, child's voice or you want to navigate somewhere and you imagine the landmarks that you're going to think and you experience those imaginations in terms of the sensory uh, experience so you actually see it or you actually hear the tonal range in your child's voice. Uh, for some people who have experienced hallucinations and been diagnosed with hallucinations um, and have experienced them as distressing, um, there's recent research that suggests that if uh, there's treatments such as um, called dialoguing with voices uh, and a number of them have reported that they experience positive hallucinations. They still experience the same phenomena but they are able to use that in a positive way. Um, other positive hallucinations would be people who experience them in terms of spiritual experiences um, uh, or talking with ancestors. I don't think we understand either of these mental phenomena. I think uh, experiencing a sensation uh, when there isn't a relevant uh, source for that uh, can be either a useful experience that people really enjoy or it can be a really distressing experience depending on a lot of context. And there is, uh, in the clinical uh, literature, there is a lot of more recent approaches to understanding both of these experiences in relation to us other contexts in someone's life. So there's a lot of work around understanding hallucinations in terms of trauma. And the reason that the distress is associated with those experiences isn't necessarily the experience itself, but 
the distress associated with that experience, which is associated with trauma. When neuroimaging techniques are used to investigate hallucinations, it's typically done in terms of looking for the dysfunction that causes that experience. Whereas when neuroimaging techniques are used to investigate mental imagery, typically that involves looking for the functional processes that are responsible for that experience. At the moment, they're predominantly separate research projects, let's call it. And while there is a little bit of crossover, the crossover in the data they produce isn't really accounted for in terms of how they uh, interpret the findings. So, for example, uh, in my honours thesis, I found that if an investigation looked at hallucinations, it would, and say it, it identified a particular region of the brain, it would interpret that as being a dysfunctional uh, process and if the same region was identified during a mental imagery in the studies on mental imagery it would be interpreted as a functional process and it's not really clear how to make sense of that yet. The difference in the, the research techniques isn't that great, it's very similar research techniques but uh, the difference is the concepts they use to do that research. So in psychiatry, they're relying on, they're looking at hallucinations as a form of dysfunction, um, usually related to mental illnesses. In um, psychological fields, you're more likely to be looking at mental imagery in relation to functions such as cognitive processes, language development, map reading, things like that. I am looking at published research within the uh, both psychiatric field and the psychological field of research, and I'm comparing the uh, the findings of these publications in terms of the neurological activity that they um, correlate with either hallucinations or mental imagery. Two ways approaching approaching the experience of sensations that occur in the absence of sensory stimuli, which is a bit of a mouthful, apologise. Currently, we understand that experience in terms of either hallucinations, if it's distressing or out of control, and in terms of mental imagery, if it's a functional part of your experience. Um, I'm interested to know whether or not those two categories that we currently use, the concepts we use for function and dysfunction, are useful um, for understanding the neurological activity of the experience that yeah, the crossover experience between them. There is some uh, comparative studies done. Uh, usually these uh, maintain the looking at one. So hallucinations are looked at and mental imagery provides the normal base with which hallucinations are compared, which assumes a difference between the two mental phenomena. I think the use of concepts in research needs to be recognised in how much that contributes to the process. At the moment, it isn't. uh, It it is used as a concepts are used as a tool without a lot of analysis of that tool use. How we make sense of the data is definitely going to be more useful if uh, we take account of the tools that we use in our research.
come to the end of another episode of Lost in Science on the Community Radio Network. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can leave a comment on our blog, which is lostinscience.wordpress.com. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter if you want to look for us there. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If that's not enough information, you can tune in again next week when Chris, Beth and Stuart get Lost in Science! listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.